Welcome to episode 175 of Control the Controllables. And we have a very special episode for you today as we discuss Roger Federer. And in what has been a highly emotional week globally, first we've said goodbye to the Queen, age 96, with her funeral earlier this week. And she was certainly a, a global icon that everybody looked up to, somebody that we could all think of in, in, in important moments in our life. And then the king of tennis, Roger Federer, announced his retirement from tennis last week during the Davis Cup. And today he will play his final match at the O2 Arena in London as he represents Europe in the Lever Cup. And it's a sad moment for everybody in tennis because he's impacted us all so greatly from the moment that he came onto the world scene 24 years ago. And certainly here in Spain at Soto Tennis Academy, the impact has been has been massive, whether that's the coaches at the academy all the way down to our youngest players. When I heard the news, I was very sad since he's a great role model for lots of kids around the world and a lot of people look up to him as a person and as a tennis player. In my opinion, he was one of the best tennis players ever and he changed the tennis sport forever. When I heard that Roger Federer retired, I felt really sad because he was one of the tennis legends. Um, I hope everyone remembers him. I'm so sad about Federer retiring. He was a legend, he was a great player. 20 Grand Slams, I'm so sad. So sad to hear you're retiring, Federer. Uh, it's been such a pleasure to watch you since I've been growing up. An absolute inspiration for all of us at Soto Tennis Academy. And I hope you do amazing after your retirement. What an inspiration, especially for my backhand. We will all know where we've been at the various landmarks of, of a quite sensational career with Roger Federer. But we want to have a little deep dive. We want to get to know Roger Federer a little bit better. So we've brought together ex-players, players that played with Roger when he was a junior, coaches that have known him, current players, journalists, to share their stories to give you a smile, to give you an insight for us to get to know him a little bit better. Is he really Mr. Nice Guy? And to start us off with his Roger Federer memories is British tennis player Liam Brody. So Broads uh Roger Federer and uh, and the first thing actually as I was as I was typing a bit of a funny thing I I was typing all I wanted to do was just a couple of questions we're going to we're speaking we're speaking to just a few different people that have have come across the great man himself in 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 different capacities and as I typed in Roger it kept on auto correcting to Tiger in my phone and <laughs> It completely bizarre it happened three times, and it's like it's almost you know that the gods out there are looking at the at the legends of the different sports. But you know, <laughs> Rod, Roger Federer, unbelievable legend. I know we we've got a bit of a story, a picture that I know we both love with Roger Federer. But what's your favorite Roger Federer story? Um, I, I think the one um, of of you and me being on the practice court with him and walking up to the practice desk and, and Roger introducing himself and going, oh, hi, Liam, I'm Roger. And I, and I remember thinking, well, I, I'm supposed to tell you my name. You're not supposed to know my name. I'm I'm nobody. I'm a hitting partner today. And he was already on the way to being one of the greatest players of all time. And I just, it struck me how humble he was and, and how 
how he didn't take himself seriously at all, which I think is incredibly rare for somebody to have experienced that much success and, and to be so relaxed with himself. For the listener, that was the 2012 Australian Open. You were yeah. warming him up on Rod yeah. Lever Arena before yeah. the semi-final against Rafael yeah. Nadal. Now, what do you... I was the coach with you at that time. What yeah. do you remember about that half an hour before that hit happened? Um, I, I remember actually that I didn't want to. I didn't want to hit with him um, because obviously, as you know, there was a lot of stuff going off, going on off the court with the uh, with some personal stuff, and I just didn't want to be anywhere near a tennis court. And I basically said, "I'm, I'm not, I'm not doing this." And uh, and you <laughs> had to talk talk me down off the ledge. Obviously, you were thinking, "This is Roger Federer," you know, this is. Yeah. You've got you've got to do this, and I was like, no, I I can't be anywhere near a tennis court. And you obviously ended up persuading me, you know, Liam, let let's do it. Like I'll come on court with you, and and you know, looking back, that was the only time I ever practiced with Roger, and that was the only time I ever got to you know ex exchange balls with him. And and thank God that you made me do that because that'll be that'll be a memory that I cherish for the rest of my life. And and it was so. Imagine this, and this is to to you listening out there. Imagine this. Roger Federer, the, the 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 greatest player, male player of all time. Certainly at that time he was. I know that yeah. discussion will go yeah. long and wide for the next 50 years. But he's there. He's about to play the biggest rivalry that you could ever have. And I've got a player saying, nah, not doing it. Not doing it. <laughs> not not doing it. And I was yeah. like, well, Broads, look, I'm... I, I he's not going to hit with me, and and certainly not going to hit with me if I start using my left hand, you know, which which was the reason for it. And yeah. you know, thank goodness you did it. And and I then remember actually that ties that story together. And I forget the exact year, but you know, maybe off the top of my head, 2017, when he beat Nadal in the final at at Aussie Open. Yeah, and and everyone spoke about how. Federer's now hitting over his backhand. It's unbelievable. You know, he's he's obviously really gone and worked away in that at preseason. And I remember thinking, well, I remember all he wanted Liam to do... I know what you're going to say here. ...was rip well, high forehands to his yeah. backhand so yeah. he could hit over it. Yeah. And, you know, do you remember that? I think for the whole session, he pretty much hit hit trick shots for 20 of the 30 minutes. But 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 the 10 minutes, he, he was switched on. He had me in my forehand corner, obviously on the ad side into his backhand, and was basically saying, hit high moon balls into my backhand. And he was taking them almost as early as half volleys. Um, it's funny you say that because I'd actually forgotten about that part of the practice. And looking back now, I mean, obviously that ke that came to fruition five, le five years later in the finals against Rafa. So, so you can maybe take a little bit of that prize money, maybe if you get his number, you know. Yeah, like, maybe, yeah. maybe some of the yearly, some of the yearly uh, money that he makes as well, you know. But that lesson, <laughs> I think it's a, it's an unbelievable lesson that he taught us there because, as as the greatest male player on the planet at that time, he was working on his game, he was developing yeah, his game. Yeah, you know, he wasn't content with playing how he played, and sometimes when you work on your game like that, you don't get the fruits of your labour. Yeah. For, for yeah. a few years, and that was a message that stood with me. Now, the, the next next thing I want to ask, and I'm going to be asking everyone that comes on, is: Is there something you can tell us 
that maybe the p- people out there, the public that don't know Roger Federer, that have not come across him, that haven't been in the locker room, you know, all of those bits, don't go too personal. You know, <laughs> is there something that yeah. you could tell us that they don't know about Roger Federer? Um, you know, what? one thing I would say is that I, I've never seen a player or heard a player that's had a bad word to say, you know, and of course that comes across in the press, but tr- truly I've never heard of yeah. a player, you know, not getting along with Roger. Um, he has this incredible aura about himself. And, but it's, it's, it's very strange as well, because like I said, he doesn't take himself seriously either. So it's not like he's looking down his nose at anyone, but just the way he carries himself, he walks into a room and, and everyone goes a bit quiet. Even, some of the other guys on tour who are obviously also fantastic tennis players. Um, but one thing I, I would say about Roger that always I, I thought set him apart from everyone else is you look at a lot of players and they have these habits and rituals that they go through pre-match and their warm-ups to get into the zone, as, as we'd say, um, and, and to focus up for a match. And I'll never forget Roger before stepping onto centre court at Wimbledon. He was playing stick cricket with his team in the warm-up area under the millennium and it was five minutes before he went on and he picked up his bag and went on um and and, you know and the same when we practiced with him in australia it was a very relaxed practice you know he was hitting like i said trick shots for 20 minutes and french open before i saw him go on for his first round just a few years ago he was just stood in the changing rooms chatting away to some of the guys who had played qualifying and qualified just he was watching a women's match on the outdoor courts and commentating on it and it, it was just bizarre because I was thinking this guy's... That this was guy's the been- juniors. That was the juniors 2012. Because uh, I remember that match. It was, it, it was. I think it was something like Sybil Corver was like a set and four one up. Yes, and, yes. And, 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 he I, couldn't, and he couldn't believe the swings and turns in the match. Yes, that's it, crazy. yeah. And Anacorn, right. Anacorn said, come on, old man. Come and, come and yeah. get yourself warmed up. And he said, yeah. he, he said, ah, oh, this will go to three. And it yeah. did. And it went, it went yeah. to three. It ended up going to three sets. But yeah, love, love, lovely insights and um, so many great stories that are going to now come out, I'm sure, about, about Federer. But I think for everyone to know that he is that person that everybody sees. You know, sometimes we see the cameras switch off and people change their personalities. But he didn't need to. He doesn't need to be as humble as that. I remember us walking onto Rod Laver and he was asking me, he, he remembered me from the junior days. Yeah. He was asking me about Simon Dixon, David Sherwood, yeah. all of the guys. And, and he, he had a genuine interest of what they were what they were doing and I think that says a lot about him and that will be his legend as as much as the 20 Grand Slam titles as well so so our last bit Broads before before I leave you to to get back to your training ready for your fantastic end of the year one or two words that jump to your mind when you think of Roger Federer I mean, he, he, he's a titan, isn't he? he he's, I, I think he, you know, you get a few athletes, I know it's more than one or two words, that, that um, transcend their sports. And I think Roger Federer has been one of the few tennis players to do that. And, and I think that's, you know, kind of all, all you can kind of summarise with it. He's not played tennis for, for, or not really played tennis for two or three years. And, and there's this outpouring of love and devastation that he's retiring um, and I think it shows what a hole he's going to leave. Uh, but but knowing Roger Federer or the type of person Roger Federer is, I, I think he'll stay involved in tennis for as long as he can. I think he truly loves the sport as much as any of his fans. 
Very good. My my last, 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 last question. Are you able to get me a ticket for the Labour Cup? I don't have two, I don't have two grand flying around for these tickets. I was going to say, I might, through the roof. I, might, I might have to stick that one on the Amex. <laughs> I need you to pull some 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 strings here, broads. You know, this is yeah. it, it's the hot it's the hottest ticket in town yeah. for, for pretty much an exhibition you know, tournament. But we we all want to be there. You know what's funny about that? I was thinking today. I only ever saw Roger play one match live, um, which is strange because I've seen some of the other guys play a lot. And three weeks before, I'd watched Yannick Sinner win a challenger in Lexington before US Open, and I'd I'd gone on Twitter. And I said, "This guy. I mean, it looks like a tame um, call now, but I said this guy's going to be top twenty. He hits the ball better than anyone I've ever seen." And three weeks later, I was in Dan Evans's box watching him play Federer and I remember watching watching the first five or six games of that match and thinking oh my god what is that sweet this is this is one of the greatest athletes and the greatest ball strikers he, he he took my breath away that day and that was you know you could argue not when he was at his best in his career incredible broads thanks for coming on and and, and all the best for for the rest of 2022 mate cheers mate thanks for that and I can report back that as I sit here in my house in Spain he didn't produce. I do not have a ticket for today's Labour Cup. But what I do have a ticket for is a conversation with my performance director here at the Soto Tennis Academy, Carl Mize. And Carl, as Kim Kleister's coach, Xavier Melisa's coach, Olivia Rockers, Justine Henning, as he worked for the Belgium Federation back in the day, was travelling and came across a young, talented, yet slightly grumpy and moody Roger Federer. As someone who, who travelled with the, the Belgium juniors all of those years ago, did you see at that time, I know there was probably a young Brit, Dan Keenan, that caught your eye as a talent, but what did did the young Swiss Roger Federer catch, you up, catch your eye in those junior days? Um, I'll tell you a funny story about, um, about his junior days. The... At the end of the season, Tennis Europe has got some masters, yeah, where the best eight players uh, are are competing. And this one, it, it wasn't in in Florence; it was somewhere in in Italy. I can't remember the exact place, but uh, Roger Federer played um, uh, the final against Julien Jean Pierre, and okay. Julien Jean Pierre was already with an agency, and he had a he had a Nike contract, and and Roger Federer was there playing with I don't know. A, a short from Lotto and a t-shirt from Adidas or whatever it was. Um, and um, so he clearly didn't have a, a, a clothing contract. Uh, I'm not sure if he was with IMG at that, at that stage already, but what you could see was a young player trying to play like we've seen him then play 20 years later uh, at, at a professional level where he did become efficient in, in what he was trying to do. But he was trying to do that same thing when he, when, he, when he was 14. And unfortunately, that didn't work out. His mental ability to cope with, with his failure wasn't that great. So when he was younger, and he, and he acknowledges that, you know, and, and it's well documented uh, that he's been sanctioned and stuff like that. But um, I was at the time, I was, uh, uh, Kim was endorsed with, uh, with Fila, uh, moved to Nike then as well, but I stayed with Fila a little bit longer. And I was a bit of a talent scout for, for Fila. And um, so I, I saw Roger Federer beating up the next best thing of France tennis, Julien Jean-Pierre, with his 
different types of clothes. And I was on the phone to this Fila guy the whole time. I said, Martin Mulligan, I said, just send me over 10 shorts, 10 t-shirts. You need to sign this guy. I have never seen this. You know, two years later, he's playing in Wimbledon and, and you know, on, on the main draw and, and, and you know, giving, giving Sampras uh, uh, his, his, first, uh, his first loss. Uh, it was astounding what he, of course, he has then played the final of the junior Wimbledon. But the jump that Roger Federer made from the age of 15, 16 to when he was 18, 19, it is phenomenal. I mean, it's phenomenal what he has, uh, what he has done afterwards as well. But that was quite remarkable, you know, how the puzzle all of a sudden fitted in his game and he transformed into a, a formidable player. And of course, then uh, IMG got hold of him and, he, you know, they, they never looked back. And, you know, Martin Mulligan missed his chance there of giving, uh, giving probably the biggest, for me, for me, the biggest tennis player in the world. Uh, yes, he, he could have played maybe with a Fila t-shirt for a, <laughs> for a few tournaments. <laughs> anyway, I, it, 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 was, it was fantastic. And, but, but if you if you say that 14, 15 year old, and I mentioned this to, to one of our, our other guests on, on this show, Carlos Alcaraz, it, it was clear, you know, I saw him at 16 and he was already a top 60 player in the world. You know, it was it was almost a matter of him just playing the tournaments to get the ranking. And, you know, he was there. I think, we, you know, we saw him coming for a while. Federer didn't seem to me like I remember seeing him at the under 18 European team championships and he was stylish and he was this and he was that and under 16 Eddie Hur, I remember Simon Dixon beating him you know like he, he was very very good but like you say there was question marks on his emotion emotional control there was there was question marks on whether he had you know the real kind of core substance that you that you need to go on to be a top 50 top 40 top 10 player in the world Never mind to be the guy that's gone on and not transformed men's tennis, <laughs> you yeah, know. Yeah. They no, so, absolutely. you know, so what what happened and 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 was that did you know, did you see that in him at such an early age, or or you just saw that he was another talent that potentially was going to go on and have a good solid career? Yeah, no, I I mean, I go back to this phone call I made to the Fila guy, and I th it was in Prato where the, the Masters was held. And that was the first time, because I knew Roger from when he was under 14, and, you know, jokingly, you know, many years after, because, you know, my name is Carl, and you might remember that big tournament in the summer, together with Le Petit Zas, was Cup Carl Gantois, you know, it was a, a big under 14 in the national tournament. And uh, he always was was joking about that. He lost in the first rounds of the main draw, and then there was the consolation, and he lost in the first round of that wow. one as well. So under fourteen, you had these moments of brilliance, but you know it was just never working together until in the Masters under sixteen of tennis Europe, he's absolutely beating up Julien Jean Pierre, and that was the first time yeah. when I saw, wow. This this can become something really really special, and then I think the year after he uh, he played the final of the of junior Wimbledon, and and you know and the rest is history. I don't know exactly. It's you know we met at a lot of tournaments. I knew Peter Carter at the time, uh, but um, it's not like I 
can pinpoint what what changed and at, at one particular moment but it happened in a time span of two years he transformed he completely transformed and before i move on to my next bit carl um you obviously weren't overly trusted by mr martin mulligan if uh, if he, <laughs> you know if he was if he was paying you to be a global scout you gave him a call and he didn't act on it no no correct <laughs> Correct, correct, correct. Uh, yeah, yeah. I think I think Martin will regret that. But I I think it was in, in, inevitable that you know this guy was he fits the profile of, of of Nike. And if we now go into his, you know, leaving the junior uh, level behind, you know, he, you know, I still I still identify him with with Nike. You know, he had everything to match that brand and the brand matched him. And, you know, I think they've done an unbelievable uh, job with him. And it was, a, you know, it was really, when he went to Uniqlo, that was like a shock. It was like announced like two minutes before they walked on court. It was unbelievable. I was sitting at the time with, with Enrique Molina. Uh, he said, you cannot believe this. You know, he got this message and this was right, you know, a few minutes before walk on court. Roger is not going to walk on court with Nike. He's going to walk on court with Uniqlo, and that went worldwide. That so he's he's become much bigger than 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 a tennis player. As a tennis player, he was it was poetry in motion. You mentioned he's transformed the game of tennis. I I don't I don't think he's transformed it. He's transformed it in the way that other players had to find different tools to beat this guy. You know, and I think the physicality of a, a Nadal and a Djokovic is far greater, in my opinion. I think Roger is a fantastic athlete, and he's worked very well with you know, with with um, with his team throughout his career. But he was he was the most gifted. You know, this was poetry in motion, yeah. and and all the other ones had to dig deep in other areas where they they could control something, and they had to sort of whether it was nutrition, whether it was power, endurance, all the other aspects. They had to dig really deep to to beat this guy. Um, for me, he's the greatest player of, of, of all times. And I think Nadal and, and Djokovic have clearly now beaten him on the number of Grand Slams. But for me, it will always be Roger Federer. And, and you know, <laughs> another funny funny thing, you know, at, at, at the junior level, um, because we were, went to a lot of tournaments together and... Uh, I, I, I remember when they practiced beforehand that I actually held his racket, you know, and this is when he was still playing with the 85 square inch racket. You know, you cannot play tennis. I'm not a great tennis player myself at best of times, but that thing, that's like a, a, a wooden bat. I mean, he's, you know, you, you cannot get the ball past the service line. You know, it was so tightly strung. It was a small thing. This guy, I mean, he's the only one that can play with a record like that. Okay, he was so so gifted. It was it was fantastic. And of course, afterwards, when the more physical specimens came on on the circuit, then you you had a, a little bit of Andy Murray, but mainly Djokovic and and Nadal. Of course, he had to change his record a little bit to you know to match the power and stuff like that, and get a bit of bigger sweet spot and and find a little bit more power in his tools. But this was poetry in motion man what he did with a tennis rackets was was phenomenal uh, it's it's hard to it's hard to describe and I, I don't think we'll we'll get players like that anymore because i think from the junior age we will always 
have played. Look, I mean, look at an Alcaraz, just like you just mentioned. You, you cannot compare Alcaraz at 17 with, with Roger at 17. I mean, they, well, one is like a, a beast and the other one was, was an artist, you know, so... Uh, but that, that's how that's how these things evolve, obviously, through through history. And, and I guess I people listening to this, people that are listening to this, the majority won't have had the opportunity to spend time with with Roger in 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 person, you know, see how he is behind the scenes. You know, we would have all watched YouTube clips and watched them on TV and, you know, feel like we know him from that level. So. Is there anything that maybe we don't know about Roger that you could share with us? Yeah, his when he gets the giggles together with Oliver Rockers, who he <laughs> played a few slams with, when him and Oliver Rockers get the giggles, you cannot help but get the giggles as well. Uh, the, and, and Oliver Rockers, and you, you know him as well, of course, he's a very... He's a very funny guy. And of course, the, you know, they can speak French with each other. So that, that wasn't, you know, Ollie's uh, all all English was, was not the greatest. So, and um, I was fortunate enough to, to follow these jokes in French. But those two together, they had such a laugh uh, when they were together. He's an extremely funny guy. But, you know, th that, that's a nice thing to have. But he's, um, I'm going to give you one example. Uh, and it's not from his junior days. It, it was, he was a well-established player at the time uh, there's a, a, a make a wish foundation that exists in several in several countries and um one of the you know this is a a pop group in in belgium that contacts me with a little boy that's got uh, leukemia and uh, he's a huge huge roger Fenner fan and um they call me and say listen is there anything that you can do and um and i say listen uh, i'll speak to to tony to tony gotzik and uh, he said, listen, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll fix something. Roger's not playing the week before Wimbledon. Uh, let him come over. You know, we'll make sure that he can, that he can come in to Wimbledon, not at the actual tournament, but the week before when he was. So, I mean, this was, this was phenomenal. I mean, this was way beyond what I was, uh, what I was expecting. So uh, uh, Chris, uh, the, the guy from the, the, the pop group in Belgium, he, you know, he calls me the week before and he says, uh, listen, he's he, he cannot travel anymore. He's not he's not allowed to travel. It's 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 really bad. And so, you know, as bad as that was, you know, I just call Tony and I say, listen, they're unbelievably grateful uh, to organisers, but you know, he's not in a position to come anymore. And uh, the week there, I'm I I don't know in what capacity I was there, or whether I was there with Kim or with with somebody else. I can't I can't remember. But anyway, I'm on the the grass bit on the Wimbledon grass uh, where the player lounges and, and he's like with all his escorts and stuff like that, just the weekend before it starts and he's walking, you know, and he, he catches my eye and he sort of signals me to come down to the locker room where I'm not allowed to go in. And he, uh, he brings out a cap uh, with this golden braided RF logo. There was only a limited uh, uh, edition. And that for me, I mean, I get goosebumps now. You know, this is a guy who's defending his God knows how, you know, which title. And uh, he can think of those type of things, uh, which, um, yeah, or, or in his life, minor. But he, he, he captured the, the, the magnitude of that for this, this little boy's life. And so I was able to, uh, to give him this, this signed cap from Roger Federer. 
that is for me a story that is bigger than you know than the tennis player and you can feel that in everything whether this is in south africa with his foundation or whether he's sort of and the class that he has when he sends messages out and you know he breeds he acts he you know how he's wording everything um that for me is is pure world class and a beautiful story there from Carl. And this is coming through loud and clear. You know, Roger Federer was so much more than, than just a tennis player. And, and that was reflected in the competition that we ran, you know, here at Control the Controllables. You know, we wanted to get the fans' stories. We wanted to hear from them. What, what did Roger Federer mean to them? And the winner was then going to get the opportunity to come onto this podcast this episode and, and have their opportunity to share and what better winner could it be than Mark Hayden, who you're going to hear from now. He shares with passion. He is a big Roger Federer fan and you will get feel the infectious love that he has towards him and towards his tennis career. So so Mark, it's, it's great to have you on Control the Controllables and I think the first question to ask, I know you're a big Roger Federer fan, but are you a bigger fan of Control the Controllables or, or Roger Federer? Tough one. I, I'm a big fan of both, but I'm going to have to be honest and say Federer. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Dan. And what is if we decide just that we're going to shut down as a podcast, would that change your mind that we would get the sympathy vote? Go on then. Yeah, I'll take you. Yeah. <laughs> And 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 in terms of you know we've been speaking to different people and and it it has it's been lovely to see everyone sharing their stories and I, I haven't heard many if any bad stories you know about Roger Federer and I think the fact that so many people have wanted to speak about him I say I think is a, is a measure of him as a person not just as a, as a tennis player but as someone who's followed his career have you have you been fortunate enough to to see him play live on, on the court in live matches? Yeah, no, I have. Um, seen him three times. Um, and quite amazingly, he's lost all three times. Um, oh, wow. And, and not not to Djokovic and Rafa, as you might expect, but three actually very, very unexpected losses. Um, it was Davidenko at the 0-2, I think in 2010, possibly. In the semi-finals, um, I think he cruised the first set, and I was with some mates, and and he ended up losing seven six in the third. Seven six in the third. I, I I was there. I was there for that one. Yeah, yeah, and um, yeah, he had a bit of trouble with Davidenko, obviously around that kind of time, and he was he was struggling a little bit, and yeah, so that was a bit of a dampener. Then I got up for the second round at Wimbledon in 2013. I thought, well, this is perfect. Centre court, you know, second round, 2013. Playing Sergei Stokowski, thinking, yeah, this will be nice. And uh, four hours later, he's lost in five sets uh, there. So that was, considering his Wimbledon record, looking back, that was unbelievable to see that one. Well, you're, um, on, you're on the same podcast as Sergei because he, I spoke to him last night as he, he gave his tribute to Roger and and obviously shared that story, you know. So he, well, you are it, it. What goes around comes around. To be fair, to be fair, I did really love watching that match because I love his game style. Being a serve and volley, not quite in his ilk, but the way he served volleyed and chipped and charged in that match was you had to tip your hat to him. It was brilliant. But 
bit gutting at the same time. Um, and then the third one was against uh, Gotham at uh, the O2 in the semi-finals in 17 or 18, I think. I think it might have been yeah. 18. Um, and yeah, again, went with my wife and was like, well, he's playing Gotham. You know, this this is a... My wife doesn't follow tennis, but I'm saying, yeah, this is kind of a like 95%. Her first set again, strolls it, I think, 6-2. And then Gotham plays an absolute dream and, and beats him. So I'm zero from three um, watching him live. Yeah. So the 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 rest of the world, if you're listening for the Labour Cup next week, you know, Mark is available to come and watch for a small fee. <laughs> <laughs> it might be well worth them them getting some money out to bring you along. Now I'm not much better actually, Mark, because I've I also I took my kids. I I won a a faster serve competition at a coach education at NTC. My shoulder hasn't recovered since. Hmm. And and I won tickets to the O2 and I, I managed to get them to throw an extra one in. So at the time I could take my, I've got three kids now, but to take my two kids and he played at the O2, first match, first group stage, Federer against Nishikuri and he lost. And luckily I have seen him win a couple as well, but it seems like maybe, I don't know his record at the O2, but it, it did seem to be a bit of a place where there was the, the odd bad result that flew in for him. Yeah, I remember I was watching that match against Nishiko on the TV and I th thought that was one of the worst matches I've seen him play actually in his career. I was, But I think he came back, didn't he? And he got through his group actually. I think he won his next two and that year got through, but that was a poor match. It was. So my my kids, that's the only time they saw they saw him play. But talking of those moments, what's what's your greatest moment? There's there's so many to pick from. You've got 20 grand slams, you've got you've got 36 consecutive quarterfinal appearances. You know, we got a lot of lot of Roger Federer moments. Not an easy question, but what's your what's your greatest moment? Can I have two or is it just gotta be one? It has to be one. Oh, that's so tough. Okay. If it's one, I'm probably actually going to go. I'm going to leave the 2017 Australian Open final. I'm actually going to go for the 2009 French. It has to be the the lone French title. Um, years of pain, years of Rafa on the clay. Even though that's looking back, it's quite early in his career. Funnily enough, but it seemed at the time like it was just you know he was <laughs> he was ancient and. Uh, Obviously, he'd been in so many finals, and I think he was virtually out in the fourth round against Tommy Haas, I think I remember. And and then he had a tough one with Del Potro, and then he had Sodling in the final. And, yeah, it was kind of that you thought this is his one. He's got one opportunity. This isn't going to happen for the next 10, 12 years, which it wouldn't have done. Um, and I, I don't think I've ever been as nervous in a match watching as that one, but it was quite easy in the end. And probably just tips the 2017 Australian though it's crazy for me to say that because that was a much more dramatic match did he did he beat Djokovic in the semis that year no he beat, I think he beat Del Potro in five so what was the year he beat Djokovic 2011 oh, okay and Djokovic was on like a 40 match winning streak or something wasn't he yeah he beat him 2011 in the semis That's and then right. he beat Rafa again in the final that year but yeah, now Rafa lost obviously to Sodling in two thousand and nine yeah. in the fourth round, 
which was probably the most surprising tennis result I've I've kind of witnessed at the time. And then he made the final, and Roger made managed to beat him. That was that was wonderful. Yeah, I mean, there, there's not much you don't know about Roger Federer. He's what what when did when did this love affair start? Well, I remember. I'd never forget watching him in the semis against Roddick in 03. Obviously watched him play Sampras in 01 and was aware of him in the late 90s already, you know, kind of. But watching him in the semis of Roddick at Wimbledon in 03 and thinking, a bit like we probably did last week with Alcaraz, you know, thinking, wow, I'm seeing something that is like once in a generation, you know, with Federer once ever. Um couple of shots he played in that match, a couple of half volleys. And I always remember thinking, this is so different. And this guy plays in a way that I do, I, I, I'm a tennis historian, even though I was young, I've watched videos of all the greats and no one's done these shots. No one's played like this. First few years, you know, I, I really admired him, but I wouldn't say I was fanatic. But then by 07, 08, I became a little bit fanatic <laughs> and um, yeah, just from then kind of grew and grew and just, just love the guy. Yeah. And, and so as someone who is that attached, how do you take the losses and which is the toughest loss for you to have taken of Roger Federer? Now that's an easy question. That's an easy question. Uh, I take the losses very badly and my wife and kids would tell you that, um, yeah, I get very sulky, um, but I think there's only one loss where I've struggled with sleep, really properly struggled with sleep for a couple of nights. And that was, of course, we all know the 2019 Wimbledon final when he had two match points on his serve. I actually didn't watch it live because I was too nervous. And I've watched it once since. It was about a year later. The wife and kids were out and I... I made myself watch it and I remember getting to the TV and getting the kind of recording on and my heart rate was spiking. I think I have to, I have to watch it once <laughs> in my life. And I was feeling nauseous and it was about a year after. Um, but no, that, that was, that was really painful. But I do think watching the 2010 US Open semi-final when he had two match points. Djokovic and- as well, though. With Djokovic and 2011, the big, the big had, forehand that Djokovic hit, like almost the just like big forehand. I remember, eyes. Yeah, yeah. I remember where I was watching it, and I said to my friend, I said, I said, I think that's the end of the match. You know, Djokovic's going to win, but I didn't realize I think that's the biggest shot in tennis history because I think that shot alone might have changed the course. Djokovic would have won slams, but. He might not have won as many, and I think Federer would have won more. But that kind of changed the mentality. And I I think Djokovic obviously put a few markers down before that Wimbledon final, and it it came back. But that was painful. And that went, I mean, I I remember watching that. And my, I mean, I'm a big Federer fan. My wife, Vicky, is a massive Federer fan. And and it was obviously the England Cricket World Cup final was happening at the same time. Yeah. So that was on a TV upstairs. That was exciting. That was dramatic. I think there was a Formula One race, maybe Silverstone going on as well. Yeah. But it was, that was dramatic. But the tennis was so incredibly dramatic. And when I've watched it back, the bit that gets me, and this is the margins of the sport, you actually see it. Djokovic picked at 40 15. 
Djokovic picked that he was serving wide and he actually moved wide and Fed went down the tee. And if he even put it like a foot, foot and a half inside the line, Djokovic was nowhere to be seen. So that was the first bit. That was like, oh my goodness, how small of that margin. And then obviously that inside in forehand, um, mm. it just nowhere near. It wasn't good enough. It wasn't good enough. It was, and that seemed to come in a little bit towards the end of his career where he, he tightened up a little bit in some of those bigger moments. And, you know, I think that'll be a one that will live in his mind as well. You know, maybe the a, a one that got away at the, the, the twilight zone of his career that, that I think will will hurt him and 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 ourselves as fans of his as well. Yeah, I, I I only saw it once, Dan. I saw it once, but I remember the two points. I can visualize the way the two points went, went having only watched it once. And like you said, I think the first one is feet stopped. I haven't seen that. You know, his feet his feet literally locked, and I think he sprayed a forehand. And then obviously he didn't get enough on that approach. And seeing Federer lose, but I don't think I've ever seen him tighten like that. You know, he's he's lost being brave and being a bit reckless or whatever. But but yeah, he looked he looked tight there and um, yeah, what could have been really, it would have been an amazing, amazing comeback again, winning at nearly 38. Um, but, you know, credit to Djokovic, you know, he's a, yeah, he's an, he's amazing, isn't he? So yeah, tough to take that one though. That was a couple <laughs> of not good nights of sleep. And my last thing, Mark, I, I could, I could share stories with you all night. It's, and I, I love your passion for, for, Federer and and everything that he stands for. What would be one to two words that you would use to describe Roger Federer? Um, probably not out of the ordinary to most people. Probably class and elegance, I guess, you know, would come to mind. But a lot of people would probably say that. Yeah, just so classy. One in a one in an amazing way, and the the elegance of his game. You know, as as kind of sports people, I guess we can see when someone plays differently, um, and and the, the the way he played and the way he conducted himself. I I think you know personally as well, not just the way he moved around the tennis court or hit the ball, but also the way he was with people, the way he was in press conferences. You know, some some people didn't like it, some people found it arrogant, but I thought the guy was yeah, class and elegance. Mark, thank you for for joining us and uh, sharing sharing your passion, your your stories, your history. You know, to be able to go through the through those shots, and I hope you build up the courage to watch that match again. You know, and uh, and I'm sure over the years you'll be watching many more. But thanks so much for joining us. No worries. Thanks, Dan. And a career isn't just defined on wins, on trophies, on 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 first place medals listening to mark there you know the the emotion he remembers from the 2019 wimbledon with novak djokovic well big roger federer fans will also remember 2013 when he went out in the second round of wimbledon after 36 consecutive quarterfinal appearances and the conqueror of roger federer that day was sergey starkovsky and we managed to get him all the way from Ukraine for him to share what it's like to beat Roger Federer on centre court at Wimbledon. Gosh, I mean, it's pretty hard. I've I've first uh, first seen him in my first more or less serious 
year on tour, uh, I would say would be 2004 ish, uh, is when I came to Doha to play qualis. I was ranked about two, 270 at that time, and I think I qualified, but I never flew to Australia, although I had a decent chance to, to get in. Uh, and yeah, and that's uh, where I first time saw him live playing. You know, and back already at that time, he was world number one. So, you know, it's a different world, different cookie. But back then, he was really killing everybody. But if I have to go back to some of the stories I've experienced with him, um, I had quite a few. But I think most remarkable for me would be that uh, during, I don't remember which year, uh, in Miami, while we were still playing on, a, on an old venue in Cape Scane, my brother's wife was giving birth in uh, in state. Uh, and she was there with my mother, and my mother was uh, helping her out. And they came to watch. Uh, they came to watch me play, and they were just waiting on a, this little kind of uh, an island uh, in front of the locker room. So I was just, you know, dropping my stuff and, and coming out. And and when uh, when I was going out, I bumped into Roger. So I said, you know, Roger, hi, how are you? You know, same same answer from him, like, hey, hi, Serge, how are you? And, you know, off we go and I get out of the doors and I see my mother and my uh, my sister-in-law and, and, you know, they're all like, they're, they're sparkling, they're smiling, they're happy. I'm like, just, I thought, okay, they've, so they've seen Roger. So no, he actually stopped by and he introduced himself. So, you know, Very I'm not cool. sure whether, yeah, <laughs> whether, whether Roger ever seen my mother. That actually, I think he did. But, you know, just the fact that the guy is doing such things I think um, kind of remarkable and exceptional I think and that's what was Roger about he brought a real class to the sport he brought the the values of friendship he brought the values of you know integrity above everything and the, the sport is just a sport you still have to keep the face of uh, of a human whether winning or losing and I think that was remarkable about him you know that um, he didn't play it he didn't uh, he didn't make it look like he was trying to do it. He was just genuinely the, and he is genuinely the the person that was doing all of it, just coming, you know, straight from his heart, his education. And and in terms of being a player in the locker room at that time, it always felt there was a bit of an aura around Roger, and I, I certainly remember. And that's maybe going back a little bit, but you know, when I played at Wimbledon in two thousand four, two thousand and five everybody they stopped when he played they stopped when he practiced everybody wanted a piece of roger everyone wanted to watch him and it almost it almost felt to me like the players almost didn't believe that they were going to beat him they were almost there to play wimbledon and watch roger pick up another title you know as as a player how was that intimidation factor? And I know, and I'm going to get on to a minute when you guys, you know, played back in 2013, I believe. But it back in, in that time, what was the first time you played on the tour where he was around? And, and what was that feeling? Was, was there a feeling of intimidation around the locker room? Well, in Wimbledon, it's always different because the seated guys, they're downstairs. The unseated guys were upstairs. Uh, I was in the Wimbledon seated locker room, I think, once only. Uh, I mean, I was seated during the Wimbledon tournament only once. So uh, I would say Wimbledon is kind of hard to to judge. But in general aspect, I mean, you know, Roger had every right to, you know, have this aura around him. The only problem was that he never really carried it. You know, when, when Roger was stepping into the locker room, it doesn't matter who was inside or, 
you know, he would stop by, he would say hi, he would shake hand, uh, you know, he would ask a few questions, and then he would move on. I mean, he was just a regular guy like any other player who would be in the locker room. There was never um, there was never tension in the air when he walked in, you know. Everybody, yeah. right from the start, uh, it wasn't like, you know, that he would come in and everybody would be surprised that he would shake hands. Everybody knew that he is doing it, that he is genuine, and everybody felt really comfortable around him, and, and he made everybody feel comfortable around himself. So it was um, it was actually, you know, never even never even a precedent i would say differently of course it was on the court while you were playing him that's something different the intimidation is there because you know once you have a chance and you're trying to win then you still have to beat yourself by believing that actually you can do it but in terms of you know off the court and, and even practices i mean the the worst thing about roger is when you practice with him um he makes it look so easy that you actually got carried away. I got carried away most of the time. And, you know, I just started to do the same thing. I was like, fuck, I mean, it's so easy. Look, I'm, I should be doing also this easy way. <laughs> and yeah. then, like, after five minutes and, you know, a couple of uh, couple of mistakes, you always had um, Sev, Severin Lute, his longtime coach, come to you and say, hey, stack, stack, hey, wake up. <laughs> <laughs> stop, stop putting the balls inside the court. <laughs> So yeah, it's you know you you can uh, you can talk about these little things a lot because um, I think that he he's an exceptional player which uh, created a lot of value to our sport. He raised the bar in many ways, and I think I mean of course a lot of guys will uh, will challenge my uh, my but it, my my opinion is subjective because it's mine and I'm not trying to operate with any numbers but um, I believe that the new generation for me the the younger generation is me and and Rafa and and, and Nola we all were created by him uh, by his change and development of the game uh, yeah, and it's just I... uh, it just he was the first guy to raise the bar so high and killing everybody so easily that everybody actually had to reconsider what they're doing on court and what they're doing in the sport of tennis and to be common, to, to try and become more competitive against him. Back in the day, that was the only goal. You know, if you would get eight games out of Roger, you were king. You were coming off the court, smile on your face saying, guys, you know what? I got eight games. I mean, I'm the shit right now. Yeah. So I, I don't remember things like this happening, you know, any, any time in my career. But that was that was the moment. And what I've been asking people, Serge, is I've been I've been everyone that I've spoken to, I've I've been saying, tell me something that maybe the public don't know about Roger. You know, we we watch him on TV and he carries himself so well, and his hair's perfect, and he, you know. But is there something? Now I think the questions are a, a bit different for you because if we go back to 2013, we've got a Roger Federer going for his eighth Wimbledon title, you know, after winning in 2012 against against Andy Murray, which we all remember Andy Murray in, in tears on the court. We've got him that he's reached the quarterfinals or better in 36 consecutive Grand Slams, you know, so he's he is the man. It's, it's centre court, it's Wimbledon. Second round, Roger Federer doesn't lose second round at Wimbledon. Yet you got past him. <laughs> you found a way past him in, in the most incredible circumstances. So I think the question is more, tell us all how to beat Roger Federer. <laughs> I wish I would knew the key lock 
to that door. But uh, um, yeah, it was a it was a good match for me. Um, I think the key on that particular day was that Rog really needed more time to get into the rhythm, and he really wanted me to play some of the rallies from the baseline. The only problem is I didn't really play baseline rallies with him. I didn't give him the time or chance to get into the rhythm. And if and only if there were any rallies, they were on a very crucial point where he wasn't feeling so free to, you know, to to get himself into the rhythm. And I think that's the only luck I had. Honestly, walking on that court, I remember the only goal I had is not to get killed. I mean, yeah. because you could easily lose to Roger on a on a nice day, you know, six two, six one, six one on grass. Is the guy could really kill you on that surface. But on that day, I I knew that, you know, my first round was a, I would say, it wasn't really a gift, but it was. I played Charlie Barlock. And for me, you know, playing in Argentina and back in that day, I mean, not like these days, uh, grass changed a bit. Uh, but back in the day, grass was fast and an Argentinian guy on, on grass was a gift. It was basically a walkover uh, for me, at least, for my style of game. And when I knew that I'm playing Roger, I said, okay, well, I have to pay for my... Uh, a free pass in the first round I had to pay in the second so my my mindset was you know not to get killed and then uh, remember sitting on a changeover of the first set and you know saying well you know great stuff you know a 7-6 uh, it's great you know great scoreline now just continue on doing what you do and you know we got another <laughs> great scoreline but then somewhere halfway through that set break um, I realized that I actually had a break point and Roger didn't and I start saying to myself that maybe if I'm going to keep on doing what I was doing good in the first day, you know, serving and coming in and not giving him rhythm, I might actually have a chance of getting a break point again. And, and you know, and then then we'll see. So basically, I was uh, I was playing point by point. Uh, and that's I think that's always the key. And that's what uh, Rafa is great at. You know, he never looks on a big, big score. He always plays every point separately as the last one. So I uh, won the second. And I was a breakup, uh, third, seven, five, and I was a breakup in fourth. And once I was a breakup, that's when the the thoughts of not point by point, but the general picture start to come in, and you know, and that's where the doubts um, started to come in because uh, you are beating Roger on court, but then you still have to beat him in your head because uh, you you really disbelieve that you could do it theoretically again you know that you can pull it off and you can you can get Roger and Wimbledon on center court uh, and those things you know they they run through your mind whether you want it or not that's, that's the thing that you know they go through your head and and if you can control them if you know how to control them you control them of course uh, I was not able to I, I lost my serve straight away uh, and then it became for all and I still remember uh, being 6-4 up in a tiebreak and serving and predominantly all of the match once I placed a good serve down the tee on the due side. Roger's return was kind of shaky that day and I would get a you know an an easy uh, volley to finish or you know or he would miss return. And I remember serving down the tee and serving really good serve. It landed really close to the line. I was like, okay, that's it. And then I remember that the ball was coming back, you know? Uh, and I got a back and volley to pick up and I was like, oh shit. What should I do? Uh, should I play a volley? So I played the volley. He passed me. And I remember going to the baseline. Roger serve. It's 6-5. It's still my match point. And I'm thinking to myself, well, you know, 
you push him hard, you get him as close as to the match point. Well, you know, now it's over. It's Roger serving and, you know, it was a good effort, but so I was basically giving up while still <laughs> having a match point up. So it is funny when I'm looking back into it, it is, but generally that's what happened. And uh, I, of course, I'm a bit embarrassed because, you know, all of the pro athletes are thinking about winning, but I cannot um, undo what I was feeling. So, but that uh, that management of expectation, I would imagine, helped you though. You know, like almost. Uh, and I mentioned this to to one of the other guests on the is is and it was actually Rogers saying he having a tolerance for failing, and and it seems like even though you were in a winning position, you could still tolerate the thought of not winning and failing, well, and that maybe helped you. Well, it did. It frees you up. You know, yeah. you don't uh, you don't feel the pressure of winning anymore. And of course, it's it's a it's a mind trick. Uh, but uh, the thing is that one thing when you're trying to convince yourself that it's a mind trick, and another thing when you're genuinely thinking that <laughs> it's going to yeah. happen this way. So <laughs> yeah. I was definitely not playing a mind trick for myself. <laughs> and what did he say when you shook hands? No, honestly, um, it, it was kind of a mental blur but I would believe we have to ask Roger one day honestly I don't remember I couldn't even go back and, and try to trace it the f- next day because I mean that was basically the, the, always the question they asked me but um, emotionally it was a blur it was a blur from the moment we finished the match almost through the press conference I don't remember even the press conference it was just you know if you watch the video you see that he's definitely you know, trying to smile and saying something nice. Uh, that's what uh, he would always do. But honestly, I don't remember. I'll have to ask him one day. Yeah. But I'm not sure he will remember. And, and and Serge, my last my last thing is leave us with the one to two words that you think of when you think of Roger Federer, the, the great tennis player, the great man, the 20-time Grand Slam champion. Two words wouldn't do it. It just... Um... It's too hard, you know. Legend doesn't fit his standards. Serge, it's 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 amazing to talk to you, and you know, for you to for you to come on and to and share the, your special words about Roger. As I've had got the chance to also have you on the show on 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 behalf of Control the Controllables and and Nikwonski and the tennis community. You know, we're we're all we're all behind Ukraine. You know, I know at times it feels like we can be a bit we're helpless. Um, but you know, know know that the there's a an outpouring of of love and support for for you and and all of your fellow fellow people as well. So lots of lots of love and lots of support from over here in Spain. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot, Dan. As you know, here at Control the Controllables, we we want to bring you tennis through the various lenses of the sport and it's the same with Roger Federer you know we wanted to bring different lenses so speaking to a journalist was important to us and and who better than Neil Harmon who followed reported on 17 of the 20 grand slams that Roger Federer won so it's great to have you Neil and with this I guess we're we're all starting to probably feel a little bit old, you know. When when somebody as great as Roger Federer moves on to the next stage of his career, and we we look back to what we were doing twenty four years ago, you know, as he was a a youngster you know, doing so well at Junior Wimbledon, and then starting to make his name in the professional game, and then 
he's gone and we start to think about maybe the next generation. And I know at that point you were spending a lot of time around who the people that are now the greats of the sport, Neil. And what, what was your favorite story? When you look back to that time, what's the one that when what's puts a smile on your face and, and makes you think of, of Roger Federer? Well, one thing that's very, very simple and straightforward, Dan, you mentioned 24 years ago, I was then on the Sunday Telegraph and I was actually asked to write a piece about who I thought would be the stars of the future in both the uh, men's and women's game. So 1998, and I actually wrote a piece saying we should watch this young lad from Switzerland called Roger Federer, because I thought he could be something very special. So I'd I'd been watching him at, at a junior level. And you kind of stick your neck out on these things. Who's going to be the, the future star? Who really knows? The young, the young woman I chose was Alicia Mollick of Australia, yeah. who, who kind of Big slightly serve. disappeared without trace. But Roger, Roger went on to do um, to do some quite extraordinary things. So I suppose you could say I was I was a bit of a, um, a sage at the time, saying this kid could be quite good. And, and if you go back to that, I mean, uh, Carlos Alcaraz, I. Actually, uh, two and a half years ago, I I take videos. If I go to a tournament and I think I see the next superstar, I've done it with two players, and I set up their own little group on my on my phone, and and I've got a just a a group on my phone called Alcaraz. And it was two and a half years ago, and the other one was Marta Kostuk you know, who I still think, you know, when things die down, that she will she will make the breakthrough. But I think there's some very obvious ones. But Federer, as good as he was, he did have cracks. You know, he had emotional cracks. He had, you know, he hadn't made the Alcaraz breakthrough that he did at 18, you know. And I, and, and I remember actually seeing Roger Federer in the Dog and Fox. And that would have been, it was the year before he beat Sampras. Yeah. which was kind of his breakthrough. Yeah. And and he had a pint in hand, him and Peter Lundgren. Yeah. They, were, they were, you know, kind of greasy long hair. And I knew him as a junior. And I said, hi, hi Roger, how you doing? He said, ah, not great. Not great. Lost first round. I'm still in the doubles. I think he was playing with Kafelnikov. You know, and he was like, what are you up to? And I'm like, well... I'm at US college and, you know, I'm not, you know, if you're not great is what you're doing, but he wasn't even at that point seeming to live the life of a tennis player, certainly not to go on and be the great that he became, you know, so your call is a good one, but it, it then happened very fast. He was beating Pete Sampras on centre court at Wimbledon, you know, and I know he didn't go on to win that one. He lost to Tim Henman after that, but he, he was announced and then, you know, nothing could stop him after that. That victory over Sampras, um, given the circumstances, the location, the importance of the tournament, w- w- was was the awakening. I think it showed that he could cope, essentially, with any any player. I'm, I'm one of the greats, one of the, one of the absolute greats of Wimbledon and, and and the world game at that time. And the maturity that he showed that day led 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 me, and I think a lot of other good judges, to believe that he had it in him. To, to be to to be a, a, a Grand Slam champion in the future, there was a there was a poise there was a poise about Federer, and you uh, that's that's the one thing about him that I think I, I noticed more than anything. He, he he had a sense of he was in the right place. Yeah. This was where he was a, about to perform, like, you know, like like a great actor at the Globe. 
he was he was destined to perform his best on the biggest stages. You've got that sense about him. And um, no one at that time, I think, could have possibly believed that he would go on to have such a, a fantastic career. Because there, as you, you 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 rightly point out, Dan, that there were some cracks. He was he was uh, how can I say this? Not emotionally unstable, but he you know he let things get to him. He did. He's human. Um, you know he 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 didn't he didn't lose with the greatest of grace, but when the mood was with him, you knew that there was something there. And you see it in all the great champions, at whatever stage of their development. And you're right about Alcaraz. I mean, I, I haven't seen much of him live, but that which you have seen about him shows you he has that certain something. The same with Nadal, the same with Djokovic, the same with Murray. Um, but but Roger was really just this, he was elegant, you know, and he had this belief. If you have those ingredients, it's very hard, uh, you know, unless you are really... Um, crack at crack at the vital moments you're going to be successful and, and and he has turned out to be not only successful but one of the most successful players of all time and you you, you talk about the words elegance and you touched on it but like almost aura that that roger had and you know i felt it certainly as, as a player at wimbledon you know when he played that the locker room stopped you know it was like watching and he, and he had this this locker room power that 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 I that I've not seen with any other player, but I saw a great video the other day of him as a ball kid, and I think it was back in Basel, back when he was obviously young, and he was walking around strutting his stuff. I don't know if you've seen it, but there's this young kid, you know, and you normally see the ball kids they're kind of flapping around and they all look a little bit fast and furious. Whereas a young Roger Federer looks elegant, he looks calm, he looks composed, he looks like he should be there, but he also looks as if he shouldn't be there as a ball kid. He should be there playing on that stage. And that was at the age of 12. Um, so any anybody listening, look that one up on Twitter, YouTube, you'll find the video. But it it really does go to show that that was something that was inbuilt from quite a quite a young age, that that assurance. And and in terms of the, the public you've been very fortunate you've been around these these greats of the game you know you've been you know spending time not just in the press room but being around those events you get to know them you know you get to maybe share a coffee you get to you get to see a side of them that that only we can imagine you know as we're sitting watching on the tv and what is something that maybe the public don't know about roger something that doesn't necessarily come come through loud and clear on the TV that you can share with us? I got a pretty good insight into, into Roger as, as the player. Um, behind the scenes, as befits a great champion, he wasn't a great loser. He didn't like losing. Yeah. Uh, he could be fairly monosyllabic when it came to press conferences when he wasn't, uh, when he'd lost. And it always struck me as quite funny, really, because uh, if I was at an event and Roger had lost, the, the ATP media organization suddenly realized if he came, and he tended to come in quite quickly had he if he lost. Yeah. And they didn't want him to walk out straight away, which he would have tended to do had there been a, a stupid, and there are lots of stupid questions asked yeah. of tennis players after matches. And uh, dear Nicola Razzani, the kind of number one man on the ATP, used to say to me, Neil, would you come into the press conference and make sure you ask the first question? 
Because even if I asked a stupid one, which I I, I must say I have done in, in the past, if it if it came from me, Roger would kind of accept it. If it came from someone who he didn't know, he, he'd not seen before, and he didn't understand, and he was a bit, as I say, he was downcast. He could tend to get very frosty and okay. then say nothing for the whole press conference, which of course was not what the ATP wanted. So they, Nicola said to me, Neil, come in, please, please come in, please come in and make sure you ask the first question. So Roger probably got a bit pissed occasionally when it was always me sitting there saying, well, Roger, not quite your day to day, was it? But I did it with a smile and he kind of, he, he would he would open up a little bit more than I think he would have done to someone he didn't know. So that I had that kind of relationship with him. But also the Times, I'll tell you one story. When we I did a feature for the for the Times or oh, about 12, 12, 15 years ago, we wanted it to be the, the, the front page leader of our Wimbledon supplement. And um, it was arranged to be to be the interview would take place on the lawn outside the players, outside the players building. So Roger was fine, came up from practice. He introduced himself to the photographer, who we'd obviously not met before. And uh, the photographer said, um, Roger, would you mind not wearing that shirt? Because it doesn't go with the, with the colour of the background. And he said, what colour would you like me to wear? So he said, well, I think red would go very nicely with the background I've got. And Roger goes through his bag and pulls out a red shirt, takes his top off, puts his shirt. He said, how's that? The photographer said, that's great. And for a very simple thing like that, there's a yeah. profession. He didn't yeah. want it. He didn't want himself to be seen not looking good in a yeah. in a in a picture in a newspaper. And um, as you know from his kind of uh, the clothing he wore and the way the style he had and the way he looked, he never wanted to be seen to have a uh, anything out of place. And that to me summed him up. He was happy to to have gone through more worn any color the photographer wanted, so long as it suited the picture. Very classy, wasn't he? In in every time he, he he walked on the court and as the defending champion, I'd always look forward to seeing, you know, what new bag he had or, you know, the jackets that he, that he wore. But just to pick up on, on that, that point around being a little bit frosty, if he'd lost a match, is that something that changed throughout his career as he, as he got a bit older, became a, a father, you know, because it always uh, it always seems to me, and and I use this terminology a lot, and it, and it comes from from Federer. Top, you've got to have a tolerance for failure as a tennis player. You know, and I always I always felt certainly in his later days he was very good at giving perspective answers. You know, of well, at the end of the day, I'm gonna go and I'm. Food's going to be on the table. I'm going to have dinner with my with my family. And he, do you think he got to that point? And do you think maybe a defining moment was becoming a father? Or do you think that was maybe just in the public eye that, that that I viewed that? And actually, he was still he was still hurting as much as he did from day one. He he was he was very professional in in all that he did, but be it on the court or off the court. He didn't want to put a foot wrong or be seen to put a foot wrong. Some might find that a bit intimidating, a, a bit off-putting, but but he was he was trained very well. He understood what people wanted. He understood what the media wanted. He understood what the, what the tournaments he was playing in wanted, what his sponsors wanted. He was, as I say, he was very well, very educated, very smart, very savvy. He he understood who he was, what he was achieving 
what he could achieve, the levels to which he reached. And he, as I say, he very rarely in public put a foot out of place. Of, of course, he got entangled in a couple of uh, debates, especially when it came to prize money at tournaments, which was something he felt very strongly about, especially that the lower players in tennis, as it were, those ranked 50 and below, received their just desserts. He was quite a strident man when he was uh, president of the player council, which wasn't easy to be a player of, of his distinction and his prestige to go into battle for lower for, for the lower ranked yeah. players. I think that that always stood him in very good stead. He was so well respected. You've only got to read the messages from all sorts of players since he's announced his retirement to appreciate what he meant to so many people. It, as I say, it wasn't necessarily his talents on the court, of course, which were incredible, but the, the fact that he stood up for people off the court as well. And um, did the jo did the job right? Um, yeah. I, obviously, at any stage of your life, if you become a father, things change. Your attitudes change. Your um, priorities change a little bit. But he never lost sight of the fact that tennis tennis was his you know, the breadwinner, and um, he, he was he was particularly good at what he did. And uh, there, there are going to be arguments: who is the best? I, I, it's such a it's such a kind of subjective argument. People, you know, people are so aligned in certain corners. I think what we should we should really enjoy is the fact that in the last twenty years, we had Federer, we had Nadal, we had Djokovic, and we had Murray in the men's game, and an era that even though players like Alcaraz and, and, and Sinner are coming through on that side, and we've got you know good some good young British players like like Jack Draper coming through, I I, I, I suspect it'll be a long time before we we can replicate the. What what that what there was in 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 the in the kind of early two thousands an era I think that is probably beyond challenge in the next few years. And we're also very lucky with our next guest because when I was younger, and that was a long time ago, there was there was two players that everyone talked about who had this unbelievable talent. You know that they were so easy on the eye, they could hit every shot, and one of them was Roger Federer. And the other one was Xavier Melisse. And by no means did Xavier Melisse not have a fantastic career. He had a brilliant career. He made semi-finals of a Grand Slam. He was top 20 in the world. You know, his career spanned 12, 13 years. Yet, somehow, that pales into insignificance of what Roger Federer went on to achieve. And and that, again, when we, when we have the comparisons within the eras, it really does just stand out as such an incredible, incredible career. To have Xavier come on and share his stories from juniors, from Davis Cup, from Wimbledon, from the Grand Slams, was a real treat. And Xavier, two global talents when you were young. You know, I was the same age as, well, I am the same age as you, but competing against yourself and then Roger was a year younger and coming through. And what's what's your first memory of of coming coming across Roger and and what were your thoughts back there as a junior? Um, well, to be honest, I think I came across him the first time was in uh, Milan in I think it's Bonfiglio tournament or something. Yeah. I mean, and, and it was funny, you know, some people they were starting to talk about him, um, and I watched a little bit, but you know. <laughs> It was strange because I thought, well, the, the strokes are nice, but they're flying everywhere. You know, it wasn't 
I'm not going to say that good, but it was good. But it was just so many mistakes. He was also rattled very quickly. But you could see, I mean, just the, 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 the effort. Uh, it was so effortless. Um, they were still flying everywhere. He was making mistakes. He was, you know, getting all, all bad. But that was the first time. And then the second time I actually played him, I think I played him in juniors in England, actually. On it was, I think it was a, a that a green clay or whatever they call it, gray clay. Queenswood, uh, Queenswood. Uh, yeah, I think it was the European Championships. Yeah. There. Yeah. And I played Roger first round actually, and uh, I think we were fifteen or sixteen, and I beat him like one and zero, and he was crying after the game, and he was such you know beat him one and zero, then I felt bad for him because he he was crying and you know he didn't play very good and it was a dark day. And then, yeah, you know, it, 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 but every, it was always there. And then all of a sudden it's just, you know, it, it took off. It, the ball started going in, his demeanor was a lot better. He was calmer. And then, yeah, at the end of the day, he's beating us one and oh, and we're crying, <laughs> you know, so. Well, I'm, I'm feeling good about myself right now because I lost one and one to you, Xavier. So like <laughs> round about that age, you completely embarrassed me in Belgium in front of far too many people and uh, the home crowd, you know, hit, hit way too many drop shot winners past me. But does that mean that, that I was double the level of Roger at that age? You know, I'm going to, I'm going to take and I'm going to take and run with that one. I'm not going to give you a chance to answer that. Um, <laughs> in terms, in terms of, in, in in terms of being around and obviously being very similar age, you know, he's he's outlasted pretty much all of the '80s, '81 birthdays on, on the tour, which is incredible. But what's your favorite moment? Your favorite memory when you think of Roger Federer, the tennis player? Um, I mean, I think I have two, actually. Um, we, we played the Davis Cup when we were both uh, 18, 19 years old in Belgium uh, to go to the quarters or semis in Davis Cup. Um, and I had to play Roger. We were 2-1 up and it was 30 degrees. And it's actually one of my best Davis Cup moments, too. We just, I mean, we went at it. It was 30 degrees. Uh, we played for three and a half, four hours. It was four sets. Um and we both cramped. Um, it was funny because he cramped. And then when he got up, then I cramped. And so, you know, it was one of those matches where um, I think it kind of launched our career a little bit. Um, yeah. It was one of those matches. I mean, I won, but it doesn't really matter. But it was just one of those matches, that, you know, it, it had everything in it. Um, I mean, it's nice to win. Obviously, that's a nice moment. But um, yeah, it was just, we both played lights out and it was just, you know, it was tennis from, from, from the highest level. And then my second one would definitely be a Wimbledon. I still remember one moment, actually, I was playing really good. I think it was fourth round, uh, played them at the end of my career. I was probably 2011 or 12 yeah, or 13, maybe it was last year. Um, anyways, and, um, was playing him and I was playing also again lights. I always liked playing Roger. You know, I always played three sets. I, I mean, I only won once. I whooped my ass all the rest, but it was never like one and one thing. I always played three sets. I always liked him because for me, in my mind, it was still Roger from when we were 15, 16 years old, you know, so I could kind of make that um, 
that that transition to ah, it's you know it's Roger. I know Roger. You know it's easy, and I do just do this. I kind of know how to play him, but he did always beat me. But Wimbledon definitely, I broke six five up um, first set playing really good tennis. I mean he was playing good too. I, I was just feeling it, and I thought okay six five, you know I'll serve it out. I mean I played four points to perfection, and I lost a game on love forty. This guy came up. I mean, it's something that always stayed with me. I came to the net, perfect slice, boom, he just whoops it past me, do a drop shot, boom, does this. And it was just four points. And before I knew it, I lost a tie break. I was down 7-6, 6-2, I think. And then I came back, won 6-4. I was, I think, 2-1 up in the fourth break. Again, you know, I mean, I played well the whole match. And then, yeah, boom, just turns it on again and just, same thing. And, and, and there's so many memories of him just doing that, you know, yeah. same thing in Australian Open. I beat Andujar three sets to love, beat Montañez three sets. To love. I mean, I'm playing really good. I'm, you know, I'm playing Roger third round center court and I'm thinking I'm ready. I'm playing good. I mean, physically good shape, everything good. We start the match. I mean, I think it was four love for him in like nine minutes. And I just, you know, now you start feeling like crap on the court. It's on TV, millions are watching. And it's like, what the, you know, what the hell? And, and, and it's just it, it, one thing that always stands out. If he is in the zone, just sit back, relax, enjoy, be a spectator because there wasn't anybody like him. So he could turn it on, man. And, and, and then you couldn't do anything, nothing. Just, just sit there. And when you're in that moment... And I know you're a pretty chill guy, Xavier, but are you able to reflect on that as it's happening? Or like, like that game, if we go up to that Wimbledon, serving at 6-5 and you get broken, are you able to reflect and go, you know what, you've played a good game there, he's just played it, yeah. or, or is that a reflection after the match? Um, when you're a bit older, I mean, I was 31, 32 at that time. I, I could reflect a little bit. I, I think I actually smiled and laughed at some point because, okay. you know, when you play good points and you do the right things, but the other guy just does the other things better, you know? So, yeah, you can reflect on that. The feeling in Australian Open at that time, all you're trying to do is just give me a game, you know, just don't bagel me. It's on TV. Just don't make me feel ridiculous, <laughs> you know? And and so it's tougher when you're younger. When you're older, you can uh, can reflect a bit better. But that's why I say that moment because I realized I was playing high level tennis, and here's yeah. this dude just making me not look ridiculous, but at some point, you know, it, it really is. And yeah, so yeah, it's it's just you know that's just what he did. And as people that have you've known him for a long time, you know, and I, I always go back to. You know, I'm very grateful for this podcast, actually, because it's put us back in touch. You know, like yeah. we, you yeah. know, hang out as juniors and then life happens, doesn't it? It goes, you know, different people's lives go different ways. But but ultimately, I think there's that connection of, you know, that tennis has brought us together. You you have memories of, of juniors. I know some things that maybe I wouldn't say on, on the podcast about yourself. You know, maybe I'll, I would share the louise herbert if louise herbert is listening the the note under the door at bisham abbey itf but is there is there anything that that you can share with us about roger that isn't going to get him into trouble but just something that maybe the public doesn't necessarily know about him 
Um, I mean, I mean, it's tough because he's such a you know worldly figure, and it's not like you know once he got to the top, you know they're pretty well protected these guys. But I, I mean, if I can say one thing is this: this guy, um, no matter what day, uh, who you are, because like you say, you know, tennis connects you, and and um, and we grew up together, uh, you know, just like yourself and Roger. Um, he he could be across the hallway if he sees you he i mean the guy just that that to me is even bigger than than his tennis the guy just stops walks all the way to you says hello with the utmost respect so for me um it's tough to get into his personal because you know we didn't really hang out that much or you don't see that much but for me what stands out is just the the pure class the the respect I mean, this guy was the best ever. So, you know, to to be so nice and still humble, and and, and do all that to me, that's 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 an even bigger achievement than his whole career. Um, and that's that that's why I like this guy so much. And I will always say, uh, Federer uh, is the best. Obviously, Nadal is a great guy too. Same thing. But you know, it's just yeah, for me, that stands out. This. I still remember Wimbledon. I'm coming up the stairs and he's already upstairs or downstairs. This guy just walks up, goes, Hey, X, what's up? I mean, it's just always very, very nice. And to me, that's pure, you know, gentleman in class. And that's, that, that's something about the guy that is just that that's going to last forever. And the last thing, one to two words, one to two words that would describe Roger Federer. I mean, for me, you know, you got to put the word goat in there for sure. I mean, to me, it's just, just, just the way you, the way he plays. It was just so nice to watch. I mean, I, I don't think we're going to see that very soon, that elegance on core. And then second word for me would just be, uh, yeah. I mean, two words are class and gentleman. I mean, for me, that is, that's definitely on top and, uh, just, yeah, pure, pure class, that guy. Yeah. And class is a word that we've heard so much throughout Roger Federer's career. But it's also the word that I would use to describe our next guest, Assam Qureshi. Assam, as always, it's it's so good to talk to you, my man. And I was thinking, Roger Federer retires. Who can I speak to that is older than Roger Federer, yet is still going on the ATP tour and and your face, your smiley face jumped to my mind. So how does it feel? I mean, it's a bit early, isn't it? Giving up when he's 41? Yeah, mate, to be honest, I think it's sad for the whole tennis world, for the whole sporting world. Anybody who is uh, who loves sport in general uh, was a pretty sad moment. But I think as a tennis player, we saw it coming uh, a little bit earlier as well. I was last week with my Davis Cup mates also, and we were having this discussion about if Roger can make it a comeback and stuff like that. And I had a feeling, I just said, I don't think it's going to be it's going to be very difficult for him to come back next year, especially with the knee surgeries. And the fact that he keeps delaying his comeback, uh, I think they're not good signs uh, for him coming back and playing at the professional level. And a few days uh, later, he uh, announced the retirement. So definitely a very sad moment. And all the memories that I have uh, with him uh, since junior career, uh, kind of came up, uh, you know, and uh, you go down the memory lane. I had some good moments on the court, off the court with him. And uh, yeah, someone I think the whole tennis world, especially myself as well, and every single person, whether they lost to him or they played against him, 
and uh, spend a few moments with him, they're going to miss that 100%. And, and of those memories, and that was, I guess, my motivating factor, uh, speaking, speaking to yourself, is you, you've known him for 27 years as such, you know, from, from the junior years. What's your, your favorite memory? You know, something that, you know, will, I'm sure you've got lots, but if you could pick one, what's your favorite memory with Roger Federer? Mate, for me, I think the one uh, memory I'm going to share in my experience is something that I don't think I'm going to ever forget in my life and uh, something that made me respect him and admire him even more than I had. Uh, in 2009, I played uh, Roger Federer in professional tennis for the very first time. I had played him in juniors, but yeah, in juniors, yeah, he was not the Roger Federer we know. He was world number one juniors. I was world number seven. But I think uh, we never thought or anybody thought that he's going to be winning 20 Grand Slams and going to be the uh, most iconic tennis player of all times. But 2009, uh, I was uh, in Pakistan, actually, at that moment for my best friend's wedding. Uh, it was uh, mid-November and uh, I had entered Basel. And at that time, a doubles ranking was around 80, 90. And I was sixth out of Basel tournament. And... Uh, um, for me, the, uh, the year was over. We were six out, so I decided to go home. Not going to get in the Basel event. I was getting ready for my best friend's wedding in Islamabad. Uh, Nasir Shirazi, uh, you probably know him as well. Yes, absolutely. And um, I had a phone call from the ATP uh, on uh, Saturday. And uh, the wedding was on Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So the one they had passed already on, on Saturday, they called me. And they're like, uh, you got in uh, a Basel event. And uh, we just want to know if you deciding to come in to play or not. So I said, okay, I'll get back to you in five, 10 minutes. I need to check with my partner where he is. So I messaged James and he's like, uh, yeah, mate, I think I'm going to, we should go because at 80, 90, how are you going to get in the 500? It's an unbelievable opportunity. And I asked, I called ATP again and I'm like, can I please get a Wednesday start? Because I'm in Pakistan right now. I'm going to fly on Sunday. I reach Monday and then I'm going to arrive Monday evening, the latest. And if you can give me a like a one day later start to Wednesday. And the guy says, sorry, uh, we can't because you're already scheduled to play Roger and uh, Chudanelli at seven o'clock on Sunday evening. At that time, I didn't know that I'm playing Roger. So I was like, obviously, Flebergasi being a Pakistani, and a tennis player knowing that I'm going to be playing Roger. And obviously, I don't know how much opportunity I'm going to get again in my life. So I went to my best friend, Nasser, and I'm like, you would not believe uh, that I got in Basel and who I'm going to be playing against. And he goes, Roger. And I goes, yeah, man. And uh, But I'm like, okay, I just want to ask you uh, if it's okay for me to go to Basel. And he goes, yeah, 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 man. To help with my second, third day of wedding. You've been here, all, you've been here the whole week anyway. Go, man. So, man, I went uh, to Bazar, arrived Monday evening, had one practice session, and then played him on Tuesday. Still to this day, uh, I honestly, honestly have no idea how we managed to win that match against them. I don't know at all. And I remember this moment when I shook hands with him after the match. Uh, I told him it was an honor to be at the same court as you. Uh, I told Roger that. And he goes, mate, but we have played 10 years ago in juniors as well. So it's not our first time. For me, it was a shock. I remember playing him in the juniors, but I never expected him being world number one, won like 12 Grand Slams already. And he still remembered me playing against him in juniors. Yeah. And the fact that he said it to me uh, after so many years, he didn't have to. He was Roger Federer, the greatest player of all times. That just showed 
his humbleness and how good of a person he is, you know. And uh, I told him, yeah, man, I remember that, but I didn't expect you to remember it. <laughs> and he's like, man, it's very easy. You're the only Pakistani guy I've ever played in my life. So I remember <laughs> that very easily. And uh, so for me, it was, I think, even a better moment for me and greater moment than actually beating him. That he remembered me as a Pakistani, whatever, that I played him 10 years uh, ago as well in juniors. And then I went to the locker room and I was uh, obviously messaging my dad, my mom and everybody. I told them uh, what he said to me and stuff like that. And then he came in the locker and uh, knowing Roger, he doesn't spend too much time in the locker rooms. He just gets with the business and he was going home, but he especially came in and he said, all the best for the next uh, match. And you're in my hometown. If you need anything, uh, just let me know. And he left. And like, so he lovely. had no business of saying that. Yeah. But uh, that just made me respect the guy like even more, you know, and obviously to learn and be a role model that he is on and off the court. Uh, people think or maybe think that tennis players just make it, uh, that Roger can't be that nice of a guy or that humble, but he actually is. And uh, that's the bottom line. And uh, that was an unbelievable moment for me and uh, something obviously I'll cherish and remember uh, for the rest of my life, man, every single time. I have asked him somehow to help uh, any of the causes or charities when we had floods, when we had earthquakes uh, during the coronavirus, uh, to help me with the merchandise and to donate anything from his side. He has been more than kind to do that. Uh, he donated his racket for the very first time we had floods and on the earthquake. He donated, uh, donated his shoes. Then now the pandemic, he donated the shirt again. So uh, super, super nice guy, super humble guy. And one of the main reasons I started my foundation was following his footsteps, that what he's doing all over the world and trying to do bigger things, just not just being a tennis player and uh, showing our responsibility as well. Obviously, I'm not doing it at bigger scale like he is, but on a smaller level, he was my inspiration uh, for basically to start my own foundation and charity on the side as well. So, yeah, unbelievable guy, no doubt. It's such, such a lovely story, Sam, and... I, I find myself of goosebumps actually listening to that story. You know, like it really resonated with me. Yeah, man. It's, uh, I don't know, uh, you know, being a Muslim, we are told that not to share your prayers with anybody. Don't tell them that uh, what have you prayed for and stuff like that. And the night before the match, uh, when I played him, it was uh, something I share afterwards with people that, okay, we believe in Allah and God. Some people believe in the universe. Some people believe in other powers or whatever. And I remember praying the night before that, God, please, somehow, I don't know how, uh, help me win this match against him. Because if I win, it's going to change my life. But if Roger loses to me, it's not going to make any difference to him. Yeah, and some people say you should have asked for something else, man. <laughs> it came true. But, uh, yeah, it was amazing. But the fact what he said after the match, I think, was even bigger than the victory yeah. itself. Absolutely. And I remember when we, when we spoke... Uh, a year and a half ago on on the podcast, I remember you saying that that was the match that that elevated you to a a, a different level back in your in your home country. That that, that, yeah. that that match is what made people know who a Sam Qureshi really was. Exactly. Yeah. Even though people didn't know about me, but everybody knew about Roger Federer. You know. 
Yeah. And the fact that a Pakistani ended up playing him was a huge thing. And the fact we ended up beating him, yeah, nobody ever, I think, can imagine back home in Pakistan that I've done that. Amazing. And, and, and something that uh, you've touched on a couple of things there, but you, because you've been around him for, for so many years, you know, and the, and the public obviously see him on TV and they see how he is. Is there anything that we don't know about him that you could share? Something I really was very surprised and admired that the guy knew every news about every sport on this planet. Right, okay. In the locker room, he'll be talking, like if you're an American, he'll be talking about basketball, baseball, American football. If he's talking to a Pakistani or an Indian, he'll be talking about cricket. Or he won, that one, this guy won, that one guy won. If he's talking to some Russians, he'll be talking about ice hockey with them or Canadians. Like this guy knew everything about everything. Yeah. Whether it's Formula One, MMA, football, badminton, swimming, this guy had knowledge about every sports, man. And, and to remember the names also of the cricketers is not easy. Yeah. But uh, cricket, maybe because he had a little background of being South African, his mom and yeah, South right. Africa plays cricket. I don't know, but uh, you wouldn't expect him to be knowing about cricket, you know, who's playing who and uh, what's happening in the World Cup of cricket and stuff. But the guy knew about everything. I didn't have, I don't have that much knowledge about other sports. Another thing, at least with me, I don't know about with the rest of the players, every time he uh, uh, greeted you or said hello or hi in different tournaments, he always called me with my name. Hey, Qureshi, how are you? You know, so I'm sure he did the same with other players also calling their names. And uh, the fact being number one, he knew at least my name, I would imagine. And I would think so that he knew all the other names as well of the guys because I think Every guy I have seen him saying hi to him have always called him Roger. Hey, Roger, how are you? Hi, Roger. What's up, Roger? Stuff like that. So he knew everybody's name as well. Every time I've seen him say hello to somebody, he always said it with the name. That shows respect. That shows humility, obviously. That showed how important other his peers are to him as well. That he's not taking them for granted also. And he knows every single one of them who is on the tour. And uh, I think maybe it's something uh, not many people know but shows only adds to his greatness, uh, the guy and the player and, uh, yeah, the personality and the persona he is. And that's why he's so well-respected, I think. It's such an unbelievable skill. And and actually, I, I've had a couple of, uh, of run-ins with Roger after junior days. Knew him very little in junior days, but saw him at some events. And Australian Open 2012, I was there with a couple of juniors, and it was Liam Brody was uh, who we've heard from as well on this podcast. Liam was practicing warming him up for the semifinals on Rod Laver before he played Rafa, and mm-hmm. and as we turned up to the to the reception to get the balls and walk down the tunnel, Paul Anacorn was the, his coach at the time. Paul was talking to Liam, and I found myself with Roger walking down okay. the tunnel and exactly what you said he he turned and he said dan how are you how, how's things and and this blew me away and to this day i still don't know how he knew this he said how's yeah. your how's your academy doing wow and yeah. i was like what <laughs> like I, I, the academy had been open for two years yeah. you know like it, it, it we're a bit more established now and then as we walked down, he, he then he then said, How's Simon Dixon? How's David oh, wow. how's David Sherwood? 
he spoke very highly of Simon Dixon and his level, and yeah. he, and we had such a lovely conversation that was that was relevant to my world, you yeah. know, you know, and his his world is multiple multiple Grand Slam champions, global icon. You know, we can't even imagine, you know, what what Roger Federer's world is, but his ability to come into my world and then the way the conversation then went was, OK, are you here with the juniors? Great. Um, You know, which ones are coming through? I, I actually hit with a guy called Dominic Team. he said a mm. few weeks ago. Uh, and at the time, Team was a junior. He said, I can he's going to be good. He goes, he's a one. He goes, I've got to watch it for that guy. You know, he's he's on his way. And it was such a lovely conversation that that made me feel that, that I was part of the conversation and oh, yeah. that ability that ability is is really special so you know thanks for sharing your stories my my last bit and this is not easy because there's so many words that we can use for Roger Federer yeah. but what are the one or two words that you will always use and remember about Roger Federer and his and his impact on on the world of tennis bro to be honest, uh, we have seen and we will see a lot of legends in sporting world, in the tennis world. But this guy is a global icon, uh, without the doubt. I will rate him, and I do rate him right up there with uh, Jordan, uh, Muhammad Ali, uh, Tiger Woods. And I think the fourth guy, probably, yeah, Michael Schumacher and this guy who has elevated the world of sports, the world of tennis, the impact these guys had on their sports and globally to make them, uh, their games and their sport popular, Roger is right there. I've, for me, he's, yeah, one of the greatest athletes of all times. And if not the greatest, he's right there. And uh, yeah, global icon, hands down, easily. A global icon, he absolutely is. And for me, I, I, I'll be honest, I can't wait to listen back. And I think I smiled throughout, you know, every conversation I had, the stories, the reminiscing, and yeah, just I wanted more. It was it was difficult. I, I said to myself, eight to ten minutes each guest, and it was really difficult to keep to that, and I didn't always. But but the one person who should have won the competition for being the super fan <laughs> is 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 with me. I can't believe she didn't apply. Maybe it's because she knew that she was coming on the show anyway. But literally, I have watched Vicky climbing over furniture, hiding under pillows, hiding in different situations, not speaking, you know, or turning the TV off within within seconds of the 2019 final against Novak Djokovic. The TV was off. She couldn't bear to look at Novak Djokovic celebrate the victory over Roger Federer. So welcome to, to, to the show and, and Roger Federer's biggest fan, Vicky. I think I have to be definitely quite up there. And I haven't forgiven Novak yet for that final. I'm still, as Mark said, talking about it. He had, I don't think I had two nights without sleep, <laughs> but um, it's, I still feel that pain to this day, that's for sure. But I mean, I, I don't think I can really add any more stories to what's already been said. Some lovely, lovely stories and, and actually so many similarities throughout it. 
uh, we had a few with people saying they couldn't believe that they knew my name or they stopped and spoke to my mum. And, you know, we see him on the television and he comes across as such a lovely guy. And it's really nice to hear that actually off the court, he, he was just exactly the same. Yeah, well, I think when, when all's said and done, and obviously it's slightly different when you've won 20 Grand Slams, but people do remember you for what you've won. But people remember how you made them feel you know, when it comes to a personal relationship. And that was a big takeaway from me. And, and I guess I, because I'd had my own personal, I had two personal interactions. I didn't say the second one. The second one was just at Wimbledon in 2019. And as I walked through the the players' canteen area with my tray, with my sushi as I'm about to sit down, <gasps> Roger's there, you know, and it was, it was like there was like this, this aura around him. And again, just as I walked past, he was look. He looked up, gave me a smile. Hey, Dan, how are you? You know, and it was it was very very simple. And and he made me in my two interactions that I've had with him since he's been this global icon. He has made me feel that, and we, we talked about that, you know, earlier on with with the guests. And that was the the continuous story that came around. And that is that is what people that have come across him will remember how he made them feel and that's more important than any any trophy that's been won what I've always found really interesting though we that's on like a one-to-one personal level but you put him in a stadium and in a tennis court all throughout his career that he had the crowd behind him I can't think of one match off the top of my head where everyone was rooting for his opponent you could I don't think that's been the same if you're talking about Serena or Djokovic the crowd loves an underdog, but for some reason with Federer all throughout his career, you felt that the crowd was always rooting for him. Yeah, well, I think it's been similar in other sports. I think, and this is the one, it was ironic that I think I, I said it to Liam. And I've tried it every day since. Whenever I put Roger into my phone every day since, it hasn't auto-corrected to Tiger. <laughs> so it was completely bizarre. It was, uh, I swear, there was somebody somebody watching over. I tried it, it didn't work on mine. No, it, it, and it hasn't on mine since, but it, it happened three times. And and Tiger Woods, I think, is, is a good example because he's a global icon in the, in, the, in the world of golf. You go anywhere, the crowds are following Tiger, they're supporting Tiger, but he doesn't have the bit that Roger has off the off the court. You know, people aren't going to remember their interactions and the way that Tiger made them feel the way that Roger did. And I think that's what's also so special about him because part of us, and I've had this discussion many times with many people, do you need to be a bit of an arse to be the best? You know, there's and, and there's almost... If we go about Alex Ferguson, you know, these sort of characters. Oh, yeah, that's because he's the best. He has to be like that. And Roger's almost blown that out the water. It's like, well, no, you can be the best and you can be a good guy and you can be humble and make people feel good about themselves. You know, and I, and I, I saw an interview that, that Roger did in, at the Labour Cup yesterday and, and he was saying people were telling him he had to be a bit nastier and he had to be a bit of this. And he said he never felt himself. And and when things really started to happen for him was when he just said, look, this is who I am. This is who I'm going to be, you know, like it or lump it. And, and then he was comfortable in his own skin. And, and I think what we've seen and the word he used was authentic, you know, and him being authentic has led to him having the success on the court, but also off the court in terms of, 
you know, the the endorsements and, you know, who who doesn't want Roger Federer representing their brand? <laughs> yeah, he really has been a, a sponsor's dream, hasn't he? And I guess we've been talking about it for, for so long in the tennis world. The end is near, the end is near, and he's played much longer than we thought he would, but it still still hurts, <laughs> still hurts now. And, and I think when he announced when it would be, my first reaction was, I can't believe we're not going to say goodbye, give him a big send-off at Wimbledon. He's not going to be at these slams. But actually, thinking about now how he's been talking about this week, I think it's going to be... Well, first, it's a goodbye that um, no other player has really done before, playing with your rivals. There's been speculation the last few days that his last match will be playing doubles with with Rafa Nadal, which is has got to be argued his biggest rival over the years. But I can't think of a better way for him to say goodbye to tennis, being on the same side of the court, the same team as one of your longest rivals in the game. It's, it's incredibly special. Um, mm-hmm. But Dan, you've been asking all the questions. We've heard so many lovely stories and you've asked the guests this, but what are the words that you think of when you think of Roger Federer? Oh, you've just turned it on me. I've turned it. Do you know what? I, those words naturally, I think those natural words do come out when you think of Federer. You know, you do think of classy, you do think think of elegant, you think of talented. And the, the bit the bit for me on that is is those came easy to Roger. You know, that was very clear. I, I, I mentioned it earlier. I saw a video of him as a ball kid, age eleven. And he oozed class and elegance and an aura as an 11-year-old kind of strutting around as a ball kid, you know, whereas normally these ball kids are nerdy and they're running around and they're a bit nervous. So, so I think those are very natural and, and, and obvious and I, I don't disagree at all with them. But the, the, the more difficult words and the, the skills that Rogers had to work on, and I, and I think these this is an important message for young tennis players, because Roger Federer was highly emotional. He struggled to tolerate his emotions. You know, he lacked a bit of resilience. He, he, he lacked shot tolerance. You know, he lacked a little bit of fight in matches. You know, there was, as, and we're talking 16, 17 years old here where these things were were said about him, but also the facts back that up. And, and that was a big area that he has worked on. And to go on and have the career that he had, to win 20 Grand Slams, to be world number one for the amount of weeks that he was, you don't do that without grit, determination, resilience, mental toughness, you know, adaptation to 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 different game styles. You know, he added the the high backhand drive when he used to slice in his the earlier part of his career. You know, all of these areas. So I'd actually like to choose those words of of grit, of resilience, of determination and fight. Because I, I, I often think they're not associated with Roger Federer, which I think is a little bit unfair to him because those are the skills that he's really worked on to hone his skills and then to go on and have the career that he's had yeah I think there's so many lessons we'll all be we've all taken and we'll still be learning from Roger Federer um and I think the only thing left to say is just a thank you a thank you 
for the hours and hours and hours of entertainment, the highs, the lows, the jumping up and down on the couch, the incredible jaw-dropping shots we've watched him hit through the years, the inspiration. He's going to be massively missed in the world of tennis. Uh, For me, he's irreplaceable and it's the end of an era. Absolutely. Well well said. And, and a big thank you to all of you as ever for, for listening. Enjoy the Labour Cup. Enjoy the rest of the tennis season. We will be back as always next week. But until next time, I'm Dan Kiernan and we are Control the Controllables.